what are your qualifications? Ah, well, I attended Juilliard. I'm a graduate of the Harvard Business School. I travel quite extensively. I have people skills. I am good at dealing with people. You just don't know when to give up, do you? I could do this all day. The Matt Sodnikar Podcast. Hey, everybody. This is Matt. I don't have sponsors for this podcast. I do have one supporter via Patreon. Jason, thank you so much for doing that. Wanted to tell you about something I pay for, I use, and I really love, and that is HelloFresh. Back in January, uh, my daughter and I, who we love to cook together, it's one of our favorite activities, we're looking for a way to save some money, save some time, and improve the quality of what we were eating. So we looked at some options, and HelloFresh is what we chose, and I absolutely love it because Once a week, we get a box delivered with three meals for two people. They come pre-portioned and there's so much less food waste. We don't spend time trying to pick out recipes and doing a shopping list and then going to the grocery store. It has made for such an enjoyable experience in the evenings. We talk so much more. We always did, but we just enjoy cooking together. And it just makes everything so much easier. And like I said, I pay for it. (laughs) They have no idea that I exist. But um, if you want to get a $40 discount on a week's worth of meals from HelloFresh, go to bit.ly slash HelloFreshMatt. That's all one word. And you'll get a $40 discount on a week's worth of meals. Like I said, I love it. I pay for it. They're not supporting this. But It's just been um, transformational in how much easier eating well has been. So take a look. Hey, welcome to the podcast. This is Matt Sodnikar. Thank you for listening. and Thank you for sharing these episodes. I appreciate it. I'm here with my longtime friend, Jonathan Siegel. And Jonathan, it's been a long time. It's great to see you again, man. Likewise. Yeah. Thanks for making the time. Absolutely. So um, one of the things, I mean, we're sitting here talking because uh, you've had a heart transplant and we've been connected on social media and as a friend, it's like, it seems like sometimes the important things on people's lives and social media don't make it through. So like I saw that you were recovering from your transplant and Mm -hmm. had no idea, I'll just be honest about that, about what happened, what led up to that and uh, would just like to hear the story and share it great well so it's been almost exactly two and a half years since my transplant wow. august of august 29 2017 so okay february 29 is coming up and uh in the summer of 2001 when i was still racing my bicycle i got a virus that went to my heart um and as you may recall i was coaching mm-hmm. um cyclists, triathletes at the time. And I remember saying at the beginning of the summer, I just don't feel right. I just don't feel strong. So I'm like, I'm going to take a month off from racing, riding my bike. Ended up being about four months and felt like riding my bike, went out for a ride and riding up the hill just here, heart rate's climbing like it should. Also, I'm plummets. I could barely turn my legs. Wow. And being a coach and using a heart rate monitor, I knew something was wrong with my heart. Came home and, you know, looked at one of my exercise physiology books and then looked at another text and was like, oh, 
you know, this is what I have. So I went to the doctor and he was like, no, I don't think so. It just seems, you know, you're an athlete, you're very healthy and hooked me up. And lo and behold, I had what's called a third degree bundle block, which had taken out part of my the electrical system of my heart. And everything uh, kind of happened rather rapidly from there. And about uh, three weeks later, I had a pacemaker implant and was able to race after that. I, um, I had his, that was in October. Uh, after the first of the year, I was able to ski and ride my bike, race the next season. And it was really kind of miraculous that I did as well as I did. Um, but six years later, approximately, I went into heart failure. Hmm. And it's kind of unknown why that happened. Um, just they don't know why that happened. And um, one measure of the heart's efficiency is what they call ejection fraction. So they look at the left side of the heart, which pumps blood to around the body. And they look at its ejection fraction. Well, over 56% ejection fraction, which means with every squeeze, 56, 56% of the blood goes out of the heart. Um, 56 and above is normal. Mine was 36. Wow. So there was pretty big impairment to my heart. And they think just because as active as I was, as healthy as I was, that actually my um, ejection fracture was probably closer to seven before the you know, insult to my heart. So went on a, quite a routine regimen of drugs to support my heart and keep my heart healthy as long as possible. So the drugs protected the heart, protected me from really doing a lot. Um, they also, I was on a blood thinner. So really that was the end of my cycling you know, career. I actually kind of officially retired from myself, you know, even though I was just you know, competing at a local regional level. Um, and really did well um, for, for that circumstance for um, six years, five years after that. And I was in what they call chronic heart failure, long-term heart failure. Um, and the end of 2016, they changed my diagnosis to end-stage heart failure. And what had happened over the course of the last, the year before that, so 2015, 2016, um, the capacity of my heart to do work had diminished greatly. In fact, I went in for one test and, and my ejection fraction was down to 12%. Wow. And uh, I like to say when I walked in the doctor's office, there were vultures circling, <laughs> circling overhead, just <laughs> waiting, waiting for their opportunity. <laughs> And the doctor came and said, wow, I'm surprised you look as good as you do. So, you know, I'd go on walks and swim. And, you know, I could feel my capacity for those things just decreasing. You know, I was swimming a mile a day in the pool. And, you know, and then I could only swim three quarters of a mile. And, and it, you know, I felt that decrease over the course of the year. And I'd ride my bike up to the gym or around town. You know, do a little stuff because that's all I could do. And yeah, I remember thinking, you know, the last time I uh, swam, I could barely make it across the pool. Hmm. And I remember thinking, well, that's another thing I can't do. And uh, it was about a four to six weeks later, I was riding my bike around and I had to stop and call a friend to come pick me up. 
because I just couldn't finish the bike ride. Wow. Wow. So that was um, discouraging, to say the least. Scary. And, you know, I try to kind of manage that within myself and not burn that other people with what's, you know, with what was going on in regards to the decline in my health. And as I mentioned, um, they changed my diagnosis to end-stage heart failure, which was a huge, okay, it really is as bad as I think it is. Yeah. And uh, it declined really quickly, beginning of 2017, to the point where I was hospitalized briefly um, for to take out fluid from my chest cavity because my heart just couldn't move things around. So I was... Um, July 2nd, I was hospitalized for um, final time. They said, you know, you're not going to, if you come in and have to have another, it's called thoracentesis. If you come in and you have to have another one, we're going to keep you here until you get, we can get a heart for you. And I had, so that was pretty, again, wide, uh, eye-opening. And I had known, they had said about three years prior, I was going to need a heart transplant. But at that point, I was really too healthy. It was I was kind of in this gray zone of being too healthy. I was still riding my bike, still um, skiing, still um, swimming. I was at this point where you know I could still do those things, even from you know even though my ability to do those things had reduced. But I wasn't sick enough to get a heart transplant. Um, one reason being is there's such a shortage of donor hearts. That, um, you know, if you're not, if you don't need it right then, you're not going to get it. So, um, so I was in the hospital on the second. I actually, I was with uh, my friends, Tom, Tommy Brewer mm-hmm. yeah. and his wife, Kelly, and my girlfriend at the time. And uh, we were at dinner. I said, I got to take myself to the hospital. I was just, I was just feeling really weird. And uh, girlfriend took me to the hospital and. They checked me in, and I don't. That was that in the evening. I don't remember, you know, when I woke up. But when I woke up on uh, the third, you know, we took a little walk out to the nurses' station. I said, "So, is there going to be a barbecue for the Fourth of July tomorrow?" <laughs> and they just looked at me like I was nuts. <laughs> you know, I was just trying to, you know, not uh, bring the world around me just down to this dark pit that I really felt. I was just like, okay, you know, keep my sense of humor and, you know, they've got a lot of people to deal with. And my, you know, Curtis, my thought was kind of like, don't be a burden on the nurses, which was kind of ridiculous because that's what I was there for to be was taken care of. And on the fourth, I said, "So is there a barbecue?" (laughs) And this time they actually this time they actually cracked a smile. I they I think they were like thought I was crazy the day before, you know, to be asking that and barely being able to walk. Um, so amazing care, amazing care at the University of Colorado Health Science Center. They're just simply amazing. And uh, family came into town, visited. All my family came into town on the, my birthday to say goodbye. So it was because I just slid so quickly. And I also had a mercy. So this is beyond like you're checking in, not checking out. Like this right. is you're checking in and this is like. You're not going to make it to a heart transplant. Wow. Yeah. That's how sick I was. And uh, they put me on, they changed the drug I was on. So I'd been on these drugs, as I mentioned, kind of 
maintenance protect my heart and the drug they put me on was to like get every ounce of life out of my out of my heart to get me to a transplant so um they got me stabilized and about a month later they had a heart for me and uh, it's a little hard to talk about this next part because it, it was really crushing uh so it was all prepped excited for the heart transplant I had a feeling when they got me on the table got a heart for me I was just gonna thrive I was gonna do great I was gonna thrive so you know kind of find out found out like early in the day about noontime that they had a heart for me and then it then it's you know hurry up and wait because they there's a lot of things they have to do with you know their other you know each donor can actually supply 17 um, other patients with um, you know that all these things can be removed, um, seventeen can save the lives of I believe seventeen patients, and then for like seventy-seven, like ligaments and stuff, all that stuff goes into a tissue bank. So they have to prepare all that, and I think I was rolled down about two in the morning. They said surgery would happen about three, so they rolled me about down about two two a.m with all this pre preparation being done, a silkwood shower and so forth. <laughs> you know, they want to make sure you're clean. And how are you feeling like at this point? Like it was like at the brink. Right? Yeah, I like, was I was excited. I was excited. Um, yeah. I was, ex I was, you know, it just was like, okay, cool, this is it. And um, so I went down, I was waiting in this, little waiting room which was or pre-surgical room which was smaller than this room it was yeah. like a broom closet yeah and uh two of my sisters were squeezed in, in there with me and you know we were waiting and waiting and waiting and they were updating us every half hour and then they didn't update us at all so it was like 5 a.m and we're wondering what's going on and it turns out that when the surgeon and surgical uh when the cardiologist and surgical nurse went out to look at the heart, it was no longer viable. So they do all these tests to make sure a heart is viable. It's a really good match. It has to be really you know close match in many different ways. And essentially the heart was no longer viable. It had kind of passed the point. So they came and told me, told us about 6.30 in the morning, and I was just crushing. You know, it was just like, it was crushing and I remember being wheeled back and just in tears and really upset because um, I felt like that was my chance. And I, you know, I felt myself over the course of the last month when they were getting me healthy enough, uh, which was kind of a miracle in itself, for a transplant to get relisted because I've been delisted because mm. uh, I was too sick for a transplant. You know, they're not going to put a heart into somebody who isn't going to make it through the surgery or their body's going to reject immediately. So that was crushing. That was crushing. And um, I went through another month of waiting, a little about three and a half weeks, and they had another Still heart. in the hospital? Still in the hospital. Okay. Yeah. All, all in all, I was in the hospital three months. Yeah. Which is, yeah, summer of 2017. And uh, three and a half weeks later, you know, they had a heart for me. It was like 8 a.m. They came in on the rounds, and the cardiologist said, looks like we've got a heart for you. I'll keep you posted every two hours. Well, he didn't come back to 1 o'clock in the <laughs> afternoon. 
<laughs> well, you know, having been in the hospital that long, I knew that, you know, just just how things went and have been kind of through the dry run. And um, came in and said, still looking good. And confirmed about uh, four in the afternoon. And I called one of my sisters who lives in Pittsburgh. And I said, it's time. She flew out. I have three older sisters. And uh, she flew out and made it in time for me to be wheeled into surgery. And I crushed it. (laughs) (laughs) It was one of the shortest heart transplants they had done there. And several months later, I was walking down the hall and I saw one of my uh, doctors. I nudged him. He looks at me and, you know, he's at least six feet, six inches taller than I am. He's a big guy, you know. And I said, (laughs) you know, still looking up now. I said, do you remember me? He looks at me and says, yeah, your your surgery was basically plug and play. (laughs) (laughs) We say short. Like, how short is a short heart transplant? Um, It was just shy of four hours on the table. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, that doesn't include the prep and I don't recall I don't know I don't know they've ever asked how long I was out post-surgery mm-hmm. so um, yeah that was kind of and then three and a half weeks later I went home and I begged to go home they um, they, they check every um, about once a week for rejection at that point, they do biopsies and so forth, check the heart, make sure there's no sign of rejection. And I had a mild rejection, which is kind of common. Um, and they wanted to hold me over the weekend to do another test. I was just begging to go home. I, I was, you know, I could move around. I could go outside. They had me on physical therapy. And so I said, you know, I promise I'll come back on Tuesday for another test. I'm not going to go anywhere. But I said, oh, please. I was just crying. I was just bawling. I, yeah. I want to go home. I want to go home. I mean, it had been three months. You know, and, and it, there was a point where I didn't know, didn't think I was ever going to get home. So, yeah. Wow. So I keep having, you know, as you're telling that story, I had a multitude of questions pop up and I'm just trying to kind of reprioritize them. I mean, how did you handle going back to the hospital bed after that first transplant didn't work out? I didn't handle very well. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't think you probably should. (laughs) I mean, I was, I was, I was bawling. I was really upset for several hours. My cardiologist came in and said, we're not going to do any tests today. And we're just not going to change anything. We're just going to give you a day to recover. Then we're going to regroup. Yeah. You know, we're not going to put you through anything. I mean, there were times I, there's a, with some, for some of my tests leading up, um, they have you on what's called MPO, which means no water or food. And sometimes that would supposed to be for like overnight. So I'd go to bed. I couldn't have any water during the night. You know, procedure was 8 a.m. One notable time, my procedure ended up being at 6 in the evening. So I hadn't any, had anything for 22 hours at that point. And it was an MRI, and they wanted me to hold my hands above my head, you know, lying down for five minutes. And I didn't have the strength to do it. And they said, you have to do it. And I, I don't know how long. It seemed like my arms were out for like an hour. <laughs> yeah. But I could barely hold them up. And, uh, you know, and they continually did tests like that, um, x-rays, I believe they did CAT scan as well because they want to check and see what's going on in the heart. I actually have pictures 
of the changes of the heart from um, pre-transplant to transplant. So, um, you know, she was like, we're not going to do anything today. We need to, you know. And apparently my situation, um, it, ha it ha obviously it happened. And it does happen sometimes that they go out and for some reason that the heart isn't viable or, you know. So I wasn't the first person who had had, had a dry run. Mm -hmm. Wow. It's first time for me, though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 And, you know, as I said, you, I think you asked the question. I mean, I was super excited to be going down to get a heart and, um, and then to have that happen. It's just crushing. Yeah. Well, you talk about the first time happening to you. I remember reading some book about being in the military and they were talking about describing like, um, like a shell going off beside you or like some explosion mm -hmm. and they go, uh, it's all fun and games. They can describe it as much as they want. Well, until you've actually experienced it, it all that talk just goes out the window. Mm -hmm. yeah, doesn't matter. Imagine. Right. Yeah. Um, when you were faced with going into the hospital and not coming out, did you, what were your thoughts on mortality and death? Did you, I mean, do you think about those things? It's not a leading question, but like you're faced with that, right? Like this is very real. Like, right. you know, I, I think we all kind of put it outside of our head that, you know, anytime you get on the highway, you know, you could get smoked doing that. But right. like, this is like a legit real like those doctors tell him you're not maybe going home. What did you right. think about? How did you, or did you? You know, I didn't. Um, I felt my job was to hang in there and not to be scared. And um, I figured people around me were pretty upset and scared, and I tried not to show it myself. Mm hmm and um, I had a conversation with my sister, one of my sisters, and, uh, you know, I said, you know, I kind of felt like I kept my sense of humor up between, you know, when I was in there. And she said, no. <laughs> <laughs> Let me tell you how it really is. <laughs> Not really, right. Right. And, you know, I had, uh, you know, I look back and, uh, you know, my, my sister and a nurse or somebody would wheel me outside so I could sit outside for, for a while and. Um, when, the, when the heart is operating at such a low level, there's just, there's, in my case, there's no temperature control. So they'd wheel me out and I'd be freezing. I'd be oh. have four or five blankets. And this was summer. This was July, July and August. And then they'd take them off because I was overheated like that. And then I was just, you know, done. You know, I'd be outside. It'd be all this work and rolling, unplugging things, roll me outside and then, you know, for 20, 30 minutes. Uh, and there are days, I don't know if you remember that summer where it was super hot, but all, all the um, forest fires. Yes. So there are days where I couldn't go outside. Because uh, the air quality. The air quality okay. was so bad. You know, and uh, I don't think they ever, I don't recall them saying you can't go outside, but, you know, I was watching the news and you know, knowing that it's been 95 out and the, you know, the air was really bad. And I could see it. I had this great view of the mountains from my, what I call my hotel room <laughs> <laughs> where I was for uh, three months, pretty much that same room. And, you know, I could just see 
how bad the skies were, you know, and uh, so, you know, I, I tried to, I, I stayed as active as I could, walked around the unit and went to the uh, sunroom, the solarium for patients and just hung out there. Are you connected to machines at this point or is it strictly medication? Um, I was connected to uh, IV towers. Okay. So, um, but they could unplug them because they were on battery and take me down and I could plug back in or, or if I couldn't, you know, they'd come get me when the um, timer went off. So, um, so I was still connected. And I have pictures of, uh, I had two towers. At one point I had 11 IVs going in. And uh, it was pretty intense. Um, it was very intense. And I remember my sister, I'm a big Boston Red Sox fan, and my uh, sister, one of my sisters again, um, Quilter, made this huge comforter um, with, you know, Red, with uh, Red Sox and um, you know, their logos and all that. And she and my other sister, Carol, were uh, putting it over me, and they put it all the way over my head. <laughs> and I pulled it off. I said, I appreciate your enthusiasm, but I'm not quite ready. You're a little premature. <laughs> So, um, reportedly they went outside and cried at the nursing station, which I can imagine. So, um, it was, it was a tough time, you know, really tough time on family and friends. Yeah. Especially with like that level of certainty in one respect Mm -hmm. with the heart failure and the uncertainty of a transplant actually happening or not like I yeah I couldn't imagine like you and the family trying to go through that that's um yeah it's a good way to put it and especially there was so as I look back it was I mean it's still with me every day that I've got a heart transplant and I have to take all these drugs take care of it um but looking back at when I had heart failure and there are all these things I couldn't do and so many people didn't know I was in heart failure is it something that kind of kept close uh, and I think part of that was protection for myself like mm-hmm. you know the less I share it the less real it is which of course isn't true but <laughs> <laughs> whatever gets you through the day man. that's right that's right uh, another thing that was tough was not knowing uh, when, a do- when a potential donor was going to come in and or be available potential donor heart so I was initially, um, I asked the doctor at some point, I think I've been there two or three weeks, you know, how will, how will we know, how do I know? You know, I don't really know what's going on as, you know, the heart's available, you know, what, how does the procedure work? You know, when will I let, you know, when will they let me know? And he said, well, a lot of patients don't want to know about hearts that are coming and going that aren't a fit. And uh, if you'd like to know, we'll tell you as they come in. So, you know, I'd get a report, you know, they'd tell me, you know, when they came in for rounds. Um, yeah, we got a call last night and, you know, it wasn't a fit for you. And, and then, you know, there were times where I'd get, you know, reports two, three times a week. And then there's like a week, 10 days where I didn't get anything. Like they said, yeah, it's really been unusual, but we haven't, you know, no even potential hearts. So that was, that was nerve wracking as well. Because they had gotten me healthy enough for the heart transplant, but I knew that there was only a certain amount of time that I was going to be strong enough 
So I knew there was like a window and then it was about two weeks and there was about to where I felt okay. Then I kind of felt myself getting weak. And um, that started to keep me up at night. That I actually might not get heart done. So scary times. Yeah. Are you uh, religious in any way or spiritual? Where would you fall on that continuum? Like, I believe I, neither. Although I, I guess on, I believe that there are forces in the universe that we may not know about that mm-hmm. may contribute to our daily lives or not. And there were several nights where I did cry out, ask the universe to let me live another day. Mm-hmm. In one particularly bad night, um, I stayed up which, to watch the sunrise. Uh, I kind of laughed because as many times as they wake up during the night, it's not unusual to see the sunrise. But when the sun rose the next morning, I knew I was going to live. And that was, um, I remember that well. And so, yeah, often they'd wake me up at four. It was four or five in the morning, do tests, so forth and so on. And so often I'd see the sunrise. That was a, that morning was especially uh, important sunrise. And I never thought that um, I wouldn't see the sun again. But again, that night, it was just, you know, to see that sunrise was some sort of sign. Yeah. You know, from the universe and. You know, I don't call it God, but some people might, you know. That for me, it was, it was special. That's really cool. It's an amazing story. Well, and it's, it's an interesting concept too, that, you know, as you were talking about the, the donor hearts, right? Mm -hmm. Um, and, And I'm not putting words in your mouth. I'm just kind of articulating this as it comes to my head. In some ways somebody else has to die for you to live. Right. Right. And that's, um, I'm just thinking kind of about the, whether it's specifically or the anonymity of it. And I'm just kind of working that concept through my head. If Mm -hmm. I was in that situation, because yeah, you know, in a way you're not wishing, I don't want to say that, but just, just, black and white unconditionally like somebody else and their family has to experience the absolute worst. Right. Right. So that you can keep going. And that's just a a mind blowing concept as I'm trying to articulate it. No, you articulate it well. And, um, I've never looked at it that way. People around me have said, you know, some people have said, you know, it's hard to wrap their head around that. And it really, it is interesting and it really is, I guess it is a tragedy of life Mm -hmm. that our lives do end and some of them rather dramatically, violently. Um, And I have thought about my donor family and which is anonymous, um, I wanted to talk about that, too, so I'm glad you brought it up. Yeah, so a year after the transplant date, they can contact me or I can contact them. And uh, it's done through the Donor Alliance. You send letters back and forth, kind of to, they kind of 
the first few steps they um, I think they they have a procedure for kind of handling it delicately um, and so I sent a letter about a week after my anniversary uh, in 2018 and uh, haven't heard back haven't gotten a letter back and I could get a letter tomorrow or a week or a few years or, or never and uh, for a while I thought about it a lot and now I guess I think about it occasionally that, um, you know, I may or may not ever hear from them. And I was, um, 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 ambassador for, uh, United Organ Sharing Organization and I get their emails and so forth. And someone was talking about his experience. He had a liver trans or lung transplant rather and about 40 years ago and he's never heard is from his donor family hmm. and you know i can imagine for them i mean for my family for my situation is considerably different you know, they lost somebody highly you know unexpectedly and whether it was you know whether he had kids was married you know the impact on his family's life however extended that family was it's uh, not lost on me it was a tough letter to write so um, i do hope i'll hear from them eventually and I may not. Did you want to talk about what you put in that letter? I mean, some of the tops, and it's okay if you don't. I mean, because I know it's the most personal thing. Yeah, it really was the most personal letter that I ever wrote, and uh, I think I won't share. No, that's I fine. In it. Yeah, that's I, fine. I did. I will share that. Um, I expressed my gratitude a lot. That was really. Express so here I'm telling you about it. <laughs> Express the gratitude that my family, you know, had, and yeah. Uh, so you know, such a life-changing event for me and the donor. I think the anonymity and the the time lapse or the the waiting period, whatever you want to call it, I think that's probably a pretty smart, safe choice, right? And then keeping yeah, it anonymous because. You know, it could just be, you know, a reminder of that, you know, painful day for them. And it could be, yeah, so. Yeah. I, I understand it. Yeah. And, you know, I, you know, understand the year waiting period, you know, it's like, well, it's very fresh. Plus, what hap- what, what if something happens to me in that year? You know, yeah. what if, you know month or two after transplant or already know them in conversation then I disappear you know so I understand the year waiting period plus emotions are just so raw yeah you know again I just can't imagine what they're going through on the I mean I you know could guess but really can't imagine what's going on the other you know for the donor family yeah this is a a, a wonderful conversation because I've started I've um, 51 i think now and Mm -hmm. um have started you know reading a lot of stoic stuff i heard about this book called the denial of death Hmm. that i started reading and and again not because i fear um that happening it's going to happen to everybody it's the one commonality we all have um but just really trying to use it as more of just a reminder how fragile everything actually is mm-hmm. and not to, you know, and just sort of 
not stare it in the face. Like it's not that um, powerful of what I'm doing, but I'm just contemplating that, mm-hmm. right? And just mm-hmm. trying to, like you said, like appreciate that sunrise. Right. And just, I don't know, not try to be rich or famous, but maybe genuine and mm-hmm. just appreciating mm-hmm. just really how ultimately temporary this all is. Right. It's, you know, it's really interesting just the amount, you know, it's easy to say I'm going to wake up every morning and, you know, going to write a gratitude journal and so forth. And um, I did that for a while and really, and then it, then it slips away. I kind of forget about how wonderful life is and what a wonderful chance I have and a second chance and that I'm doing enough with that. And then I start to feel guilty um, that I'm not doing enough. I'm not contributing enough to others, which is one thing I really got out of this was I, the number of people who contributed to me, people who came and visited, the nursing staff, the medical staff, um, you know, everybody who contributed to me one way or another financially um, how how much gratitude I had for them and some days I'm really cognizant to that and go out in the world and I'm going to make a difference however small it might be in mm-hmm. other days it's like not even in my consciousness or even I guess it's in my subconsciousness but it's not even yeah. it's not even there for me you're just a normal person again. right <laughs> Like traffic sucks right. and I want to watch some Netflix and right. I want to, you know, I'm going to sit on my ass. I'm going to check out and do nothing. <laughs> do nothing. At the end of the day, we're all still human beings. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And, you know, it's, uh, there, there are times where it's hard to cut myself slack for that. Yeah. And, uh, and then there are times where, you know, skied a lot this season. I'm just like, wow, it's amazing that I'm out here skiing again. You talked about the gratitude journal, and that's something I had done pretty consistently for several years. Mm-hmm. And I had heard, um, listen to this audio book called, um, oh, blank on it now, Insight by Tasha Yurik. She's a Denver author here. And she talks about how we don't really, we're not as honest with ourselves and as accurate with our self perceptions. And so, Two things. Um, I started going to the gym super early in January, and that disrupted my morning routine, which used to be meditation, the quick journal, used to be something else. And so that disrupted. But then listening to her book, she's talking about, you know, journaling is great, but and I, I kind of lost her thread on like mm-hmm. how you're supposed to do it. But again, it's like anything else, right? It's like Coke versus Pepsi. It's tea versus coffee. Like depends who you listen to and depends what works for you. Her thing was that like, you know, just to do it for the sake of the habit, which kind of made sense is not the right reason to do that. And so it's now been, what's this February 24th. So it's been, you know, almost two months since I've not done it, but I'm thinking about, Oh, you know, yesterday was, kind of an amazing day and capture that but then well if i don't go back and 
read it or appreciate it, does the journaling part really matter? And so it's taking me more into like the awareness of the moment rather than like, oh, this is something I have to capture after the fact. Like this is my mm-hmm. paperwork at the end of my shift that I've got to file. So it's it's interesting to hear that you've gone, you know, kind of both ways on that too. Right. Yeah, you know, in the journaling, um, it comes and goes. I'll spend time journaling, but yeah. not. Uh, meditation, the same thing. Yeah. I know it's good for me, and that doesn't have me doing it all the time. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, you know, good for me is, is, you know, obviously subjective, but it would provide something for me. Yeah. You know, I mean, or it, yeah, it would provide something to be able to meditate, start my day with that type right. of activity. Yeah, I, I tried it for the first time after a workout last week. And so, again, I'm out of, ha- out of practice. And I remember to be kind to myself that, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. if I haven't gone for a ride in a couple of weeks, why, why do I think I'd be good at it? <laughs> but um, I did it and I was just amazed at how much of a monkey mind I actually really had. <laughs> and I was like... Uh, and again, it, after having done meditation for years, just like there's no destination, there's no score. It's just like, okay, today my mind is just very, very noisy. Right. Yeah. Good way to put it. Yeah. Really good way to put it. You talk about going to the gym, and I used to be a gym rat. Um, and, you know, with cycling, there are all these metrics. Oh, totally. That, you know. <laughs> It's and almost worse than like fantasy baseball. <laughs> There's do you so do many... fantasy baseball? No. <laughs> I, you know what? I'm doing it this year for the first time. Are you? Like, <laughs> like, why am I doing this? I'm a huge <laughs> baseball fan. Is this yeah. going to ruin it for me? Yeah. And a couple of guys, a couple of other team owners are helping me out. One of them said, he said, have fun with it. Just yeah. make sure you have fun with it. But yeah, there's so many metrics, and now there's Strava. You know, people measuring yep. every little bit of their cycling, their skiing, and posting it. And someone said, "How come you're not on Strava?" I said, "I've been there, done that. I raised, <laughs> I, I measured heart rate, I measured power, I measured speed, kept logs." No, I no longer need to do that. Yeah, yeah. But still, I go to the gym, and for the first two months when I went to the gym um, I went went through cardiac rehab at the hospital out post-transplant and started about two months post-transplant and I could barely turn the pedals just barely um, and um, and towards the end they you know they're they always like do what you can if you want to go for a walk or whatever at home do that so it, about three weeks left I started to go to the gym and try to, I mean, I had to have someone spot me with just the bar. Sure. Yeah, just a 45-pound bar. And uh, now I'm lifting 125 pounds, so that feels really good. How much a bench, bro? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Do you remember the old metric of, you know, if, if, if you can't lift, if you can't bench press as much as your weight, you're a wimp. You remember yeah. that one kind oh, yeah. of sort of, you know, and you, you've got to be able to squat three times your weight or whatever. Who made that up? I don't know. I remember. I remember that from you know way back when. You know, yeah. Got, got him to be able to. You know, but hey, I'm getting there. <laughs> One more sunrise, right? Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Exactly. 
Good so what's life that. like now post transplant? I mean, you're skiing, so that's that's a you know a strenuous activity. So yeah. what are your limitations? What you know what like what's it like now? Don't have any limitations. I can do whatever I feel like doing. Really? Yeah. So I mean, if I wanted to race again, I could race, um, but I don't want to race again. <laughs> <laughs> it's a ton of work. It's a ton of work. I put a lot of miles in last summer. Just real casual, yeah. 20, 25, 30 miles at a time, you know, 15, 60 miles an hour. And it's, it was great. I loved it. Yeah. Didn't feel the need to push it. You know, it was like every ride was kind of like a recovery ride. Um, skiing has been a gas this year. Um, the year, let's see, six months post-transplant no five months post-transplant I was riding my bike again and I remember riding up to Wash Park and doing three laps and I just felt it was really emotional as I never thought I was going to ride a bike again yeah and um, and then two months after that in March I was skiing skied three times you know post-transplant that year last year I did four times this year I've done a dozen and having a ton of fun and I'm like god I can't ski worth a darn I used to be able to ski so much better than this my buddy's like hey bro you know you had like eight eight years when you couldn't ski <laughs> but I got to that point where I could ski like I wa- always wanted to ski like I could envision you know fast and smooth and so forth and so on but I'm not there now <laughs> <laughs> got the boards on your feet man. That's the boards are on my feet I'm thinking about new gear for next year so yeah I, I'm kind of done with the racing side too and I, I ride totally blind because I, I took off my speedometer years ago I was doing the Santa Fe Century and having a particularly tough day and I may have told this story before but like I did the math wrong like have you ever done the Santa Fe Century never no it's it's an awesome ride and we just passed like rest stop one and there's this long sustained climb and I was suffering like a dog and I did the math we were like 19 miles in and I was going like six miles an hour up this hill and I was like I've got like 80 miles to go going six miles an hour not factoring that like it flattens out and there's downhills like i'm gonna be on this bike for like 12 more hours and so i popped the head off the speedometer and now yeah i get it with the strava and my buddy cole gave me his garmin you know hr watch and all that stuff but like at some point i look at it now like it's a binary thing Mm -hmm. on or off like either i'm with the pack or the group or i'm not and to know that, you know, I'm X percent of my FTP or max or whatever, like, it doesn't matter. Like, you don't have the firepower. You don't have the firepower. And knowing exactly how off you are doesn't help. Exactly. And I don't care. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. <clears throat> so, yeah, those those recovery rides are, you know, that's, that's being here now, being in the moment and just right. looking around. Right. And there's always somebody faster, always somebody slower. Exactly. Exactly, and I was having a conversation with, about speed with a friend of mine, and, and you know, I said, you know, sometimes they feel like going out and slowing people down. He said, nobody cares. Yeah, you know, they just appreciate you're out there with them. It's like, oh, that's a good. And I realized, you know, I feel the same way. Yeah. If I'm riding with guys and someone's fast or someone's slow, I don't care. 
it's like fun to be out there with him. Yeah. Even though I might get on it that somebody's 500 yards and I can barely see him. <laughs> and then I get off it, you know, it's yeah. like I get back on my bike and out of my head. I had the same experience yesterday. I went up and did the, uh, the blizzard on the fat bike at Staunton State Park and they had races and they had a group ride. And I was like, man, because the thing about like a race like that for me is at some point, I'm going to be out there alone, mm, mm-hmm. not totally alone. There'll be somebody passing me or somebody up ahead, which I can handle on the cross course or out on the road. That's fine. But not when it's snowing and it's cold. Like that's when I start, I'd be having a serious pity party. right? <laughs> and I was like, not in the mood for that that day and met this guy. And like, I mean, this is the highest compliment. Like he's a sweet dude, right? He's been riding. He lives down near me in Parker and we're just hanging out, having a couple beers and just talking. And he got into cycling, would go on these meetups and people would just drop him and just keep you out there. And I was like, dude, I got, I got people for you to ride with me being one. I'm like, right. we don't care. Right. right. But I would not have had that conversation with that guy if I was out there racing and he was, you know, we'd be on the group ride together. He was behind me and we'd catch up and just chat for a minute. And so we kind of built this you know, start of a little friendship simply by just having an experience rather than competing. Right. right and yeah. that's kind of where I'm at now. Like I still ride a fair bit, but it's like, I don't really care how far, I don't really care how fast. Exactly. It's more about like, if I can create a connection or an experience, that's more important to me. Yeah, I am. <laughs> so I bought my dream mountain bike this summer uh, after my transplant. What did you get? I got a, a Trek uh, Pro Caliber. Oh, nice. super sweet uh, hardtail I just love hardtail yeah. um, so I grew up riding never ridden full suspension but I just love it so much I don't know I, I was out like my sixth time and I was just hating it and suffering <laughs> I came back told my sister called her up said I hate this sport <laughs> you're doing it right you reach yeah, that point exactly exactly <laughs> yeah, it's just like crazy uh, you talked about centuries, so I think it was 2012 was, I, I did the uh, Elephant Rock ride. Yeah. My buddy Tommy, you, you know, I don't know if we call him, um, he pushed me at least half the way. And we didn't finish. I mean, I could barely pedal on the flats. And we didn't finish because I think he was too tired of pushing me. <laughs> he pushed me a lot. And then um, 2018, I did, the, I did it again. We rode together. And I said, I said, if I have to push you, I'm going to laugh. <laughs> <laughs> well, we had a good ride, rose a lot of, uh, raised money for the American Transplant Foundation. And I did it last year. Am I going to do it this year? I don't know. We'll see. <laughs> but you can. And that's I, I can. Part. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So we'll see if I do it again. But, you know, it's fun. Uh, and that was one of the things that kept me alive. There were a lot of things that kept me alive. One of them was people, you know, wanting to see my family again. Not wanting them to have to go through losing me. I, you know, I lost my parents. I knew what that was like. Yeah. But, uh, you know, not having them to go through that. You know, wanting to see my oldest niece get married, which I did. Um, not seeing, um, being able to see... Uh, 
my niece who lives in Boulder, graduate from high school, turn 18, go off to college. All, all that I got to see in 2018, you know, which I wouldn't have been able to do. And, you know, things like that kept me alive. People really kept me alive. So when you say that, was that, um, what was that emotion like? Was that more of like a warrior mentality? Like, I'm just going to fight this? Or was it just like, like a quiet resignation? Like, what was your mental state when you're thinking about staying alive? Um, it's quiet determination. And I guess there was some kind of warrior. I, I like the, the warrior part. I would say there was definitely something that was like, okay, I'm going to do this. You know, never, never going to quit. Um, you know, not fade away. I wasn't ready to, for that. You know. And now having two and a half years more, it's um, with heart, with heart, with any, well, with heart transplantees and lung transplantees, it's, the clock's always kind of ticking and you don't know, you know, um, when I might get rejection again. I haven't had rejection in, gosh, I don't know, 18 months. It may never again have any heart rejection. Um, so it's always there, my mortality, much more than it ever was. You know, um, and, you know, when I take big thing of drugs, I have another, you know, sorting 18 drugs. Some of them I take, uh, you know, multiple times of the day. You know, it's uh, it's not a chore. It's not a chore. It's a, I wouldn't say it's an opportunity, but I guess that's the closest word I can come to it. It's like there, at least I can sort them out, you know. Something used to take me two and a half hours to sort out. Now I can do it in half an hour. Because it's just the automatic, yeah. you know, and, and um, yeah. But getting through it, there was just this. Um, uh, as I mentioned, I knew when I got if if I got on the table, they'd have heart for me and I'd thrive, and I did. I have, and they really amazed at how well I am doing and how well I did the first year. First year is kind of important with a heart transplant or probably any transplant. So, um, you know, and I listen, I still listen to the law of the land with, uh, my medical staff, you know, I have a transplant coordinator and there's always a group of doctors that I see and they make sure I go in for endocrinology, dermatology, all those things. I make sure I stay up on, you know, they're not going to lose me to something small. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> you know, and, uh, I call that the, the broken shoelace, right? Like that, you know, something so insignificant can right. take down the whole freaking operation. Oh, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So, uh, yeah, it's uh, my um, transplant coordinator. Is just, she's just wonderful. And, you know, I call her my heart transplant coordinator for life because, you know, I have a team. You know, it's always there. And it's kind of like, I think one of the things that keeps me I want to say it keeps me going or keeps me not even motivated. Uh, I guess would say motivated is um, not to let down everyone who just did so much for me. Um, well, it sounds like you had that before the transplant. Where do you think that came from? Where was the, the origin of that in your, your life, your experience, your relationships that had that strong sense of accountability? Oh, definitely my father. Yeah. Definitely my father. Um, what was up, his story? 
grew up with that responsibility. Um, he was a college professor. Is that you mean kind of his bio or? Or like what were those values and that stuff that imparted that into you? Oh, goodness. He was stern. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, know, the type of father who maybe thought way, way, way down that he loved you, but really just kind of a just tough guy um, who really believed in integrity, personal integrity and treating people well. He He was a... Um, college physics professor did a lot of research and uh, could relate to anybody whether it was his uh, lawn guy or one of his uh, colleagues and uh, and I that's something I got from him is just really appreciating people for who they are and um, that doesn't mean as I think you mentioned I'm driving down the road and someone cuts me <laughs> off and <laughs> like I said we're all human yeah so that's the appreciation for others yeah Yeah, I really got the sense when I was in the hospital that um, I was getting just amazing care, just like the people cared about me. And um, I saw my um, heart failure cardiologist, who I no longer see, but I saw her briefly. I think I ran into her in the hall or she was doing a procedure. And I said, um, something about my family was really worried about me. She said, we all all were. We were all really worried about you. And... uh, you know, I had a sense. I mean, just the care and everything I got from people was just amazing. And um, you know, and I was the youngest one on the ward. You know, and um, on the cardiac care unit, so that um, that had an impact. It's hard to say what that impact was. Um, so. Yeah, very, as I said, a lot of gratitude. I go back to my, whenever I go to the hospital, which is about, oh, about six, well, when I'm there about every six months for regular checkup, and I'm there for half the day, I always stop in and see my, my what I call my unit, <laughs> take coffee cards or chocolate or something, and it's great to see them. They're always so happy to see me, and they, you know, one, one of them pulled me aside, um, about a year ago and said, you know, we just love seeing you because we just know that we can accomplish anything. We can accomplish a miracle. And it's just, I love that they got that for themselves. Basically how good they are. You know, just how professional they are and how they really care. You know, it's a job for them. And, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't a job. I was a person that they were relating to. So, Gratitude. That's an amazing story. Um, yeah, thanks for thanks for doing it, man. I, I couldn't think of a better place to push pause on this than just that sentiment. Like, just <laughs> yeah. this this conversation. I mean, they, they all have had impacts on me, but like this one is going to be something mm-hmm. I'm going to ponder for days, which is cool. Very cool. So, thank you. Yeah, and you know, I'm looking for, um, as I mentioned. Um, looking for a job and I really want something that yeah, I own a painting company now. Mm-hmm. I really want something where I can make an impact on people, really make a big difference. Love to get a job with the Donor Alliance, American Transplant Foundation. Um, but it could be another, you know, nonprofit, something that really yeah. reaches a lot of people. 
so I can really good give back. I mean, people gave a lot of money to my GoFundMe, um, did silent auction for me to raise money so I could you know live afterwards and take um, almost a year off. And I, I took actually about eight months off. Wow! So I, you know they raised enough living expenses for that, and that makes a big difference, you know, for patients to be able to have, yeah. you know, I was in. Pardon me, I was in cardiac rehab, and they can, I think the room, they can handle like 18 people, 20 people at a time. And at one point, during the 15 weeks I was doing it, I think there were like seven of us. And I said to one of the nurses, why is, why is that? She said, well, some people don't want to do it, so they don't make the time. Other people have to go back to work, like almost immediately. And I was like, wow. You know, the two things didn't... You know, one of the things that people would have to go back to work after such a surgery, and not everybody was in there for a transplant. You know, the people in there had had, you know, heart attacks, they'd had triple bypass, quadruple bypass, or stents. Um, but then it blew me away because I was so committed to getting better, and that there are people who said, no, I don't want to do it. And I, I can get that mindset, or I can't understand that mindset, but that's what. You know, there's no judgment there. That's what, you know, however they deal with it is how they dealt with it. But I had a goal, and it was it was to ride the elephant rock. Yeah. You know, and eight months later. So, and they knew. I, it was funny. I was in there about a month ago and dropped into uh, the physical therapy, the cardiac rehab. And, and one of the um, therapists said, uh, we had therapists said, you know, we kept pushing you because we knew what your goals were they said you never complained (laughs) i said you know i i had that goal out there you know i wanted to return to an active life i would i don't think this is hyperbole but i would say to any prospective employer that that would be like there's probably not going to be many challenges you're going to face in a career (laughs) that are going to um give you any pause or any concern for execution because yeah coming back from yeah the brink of death and then to go ride elephant rock like <laughs> what's accounting going to do to me that, you, that i haven't already experienced <laughs> right, right? right right yeah and it's uh you know it's it, it is daunting though looking for a job mm-hmm you know, seeing what's out there and I'm not qualified or overqualified or I've done that. I don't want to do it again. Um, and I do have a sense I can, you know, do anything that I put myself to. Yeah. Um, and that's something I got from my father, too. He said words almost exactly like that. He said, you know, you can do anything you put your mind to. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, I'll keep my eyes and ears out and connections. No, out. thanks. Thanks. So. Thanks. Yeah. Um, what's that? Is it v, VF Corporation? I just wish I had a contact over there. And there are a lot of things. Um, Colorado Outdoor Club had something, you know, that I learned I learned about about a month after the job closed. And I submitted a resume anyhow. Yeah. I put in my letter. I said, hey, you know, you may have filled this job, but I want to do something like that. You know, especially love for the outdoors and make, making it more accessible for people. Although here it seems like people are accessing uh, accessing it to the excess here in Colorado. <laughs> <laughs>
Well, dude, this has been great. It's been yeah. wonderful to connect with you again and yeah, hear this story. So, yeah, Jonathan, thank you. Oh, yeah. Go ahead. Sorry. Go ahead. Oh, the other thing I was going to say is, you know, I was mentioned my um, eject, ejection fraction. Mm-hmm. Uh, on the day of my transplant, it was nine percent. Wow. <laughs> so it's no wonder that I was hanging on there. Jeez, and zero is nothing, right? Zero is a non-functional. Number. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Am and I, what is it now? What do they measure? What is it now? Uh, it is now uh, 56. So it's right. just over normal. All right. So, yeah. And um, I don't know what it is now, actually. That was about two years ago. Because this type of test that um, if I showed symptoms of weakness or rejection, that they would do it again. But, you know, I'm not riding my bike, skiing, lifting weights. There's no reason to, you know, spend money. Test those things again. Well, thanks a lot. Dude. Yeah, it's been great, man. Appreciate I appreciate it. it. It's great catching up with you. <laughs> thanks. Next opportunity for me to share my story. You bet. With, with my blog, my blog is kind of an outline. Oh yeah, yeah. I was gonna say if there's anybody that what's I'll link to that. So I forgot to mention that. Tell oh me. yeah. Well, it's um. So I talk about my experiences kind of in um. Short kind of you know short blocks because I don't think people really read. A whole lot of things you know in length yeah you know, they might read a few paragraphs so it's kind of the uh, structure for my book that i'll eventually write right. and it's called hot wings and gratitude <laughs> that's awesome <laughs> i love that oh so the, well you'd have to re- read the blog about where the hot wings cut came in and actually one of the chapters is called how the hot wings flew in but i walked into the solarium and there's this huge guy man he's this huge guy <laughs> You know, and every every set, you know, tall and spread out. And, yeah. uh, you know, it wasn't that bad or heavy. Um, but he was eating this big hamburger and these hot wings. I'm like, <laughs> man, where'd you get those wings? He said, oh, it's on the secret menu. So the hospital had a secret menu. All right. <laughs> so, man, one week, I don't know. I would have hot wings <laughs> three, four times a week after that. You know, <laughs> right? Probably one of the worst uh, diets for a heart. This is pre-transplant. <laughs> So uh, gratitude, I think you picked up on. Yeah, so, yeah, I love it. I try to keep it a fun blog to read, but uh, yeah, I'll post a link to it. Oh, thanks. That'd be great. Thanks, dude. This has been great. Ah, it's been fantastic. <laughs> if you like this show, I have a very simple and quick favor to ask. Would you please share it with one person who you think might enjoy it? And maybe they've never even heard of podcasting or never listened to one, but maybe help get them set up with how to actually download and listen to content. Hey, Denver, if you are in the tech business, IT, anything like that, you need to mark your calendars for Thursday, March 26th of this year, 2020, for the sea level at Mile High. I went last year and it's incredible. Formed some great relationships. John Cox, Aaron Bach, uh, podcast guests met at this event, and it's the biggest fundraiser for the Colorado Technology Association, and it's a way to get in front of C-level people. They're actually the celebrities for the event and have legitimate conversations. It's just a wonderful networking event, first class. It's actually at Empower Field at Mile High, which 
<laughs> how long has it been that? Um, but it's uh, where the, Bro- the Denver Broncos play football. So uh, take a look at the coloradotechnology.org, sea level at mile high, and check it out. You need to be there.